Welcome to High Performance Mindset with Dr. Sindra Kampoff. Do you want to reach your full potential, live a life of passion, go after your dreams? Each week, we bring you strategies and interviews to help you ignite your mindset. Let's bring on Sindra. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Sindra Kampoff, and I'm grateful that you're here, ready to listen to episode 172 with Dr. Colleen Hacker. Now, the goal of these interviews is to learn from the world's best leaders, coaches, athletes, and consultants, all about the topic of mindset to help us reach our potential or be high performers in our field or our sport. Now, today, I had the amazing privilege of interviewing Dr. Colleen Hacker. And her experience is simply extraordinary. She has served as a member of the United States coaching staff for five Olympic Games as their mental skills coach and performance psychology specialist. So she started her work with national teams in 1995, first working with the U.S. women's national soccer team. Now they won the first gold medal awarded in women's soccer in the 1996 Olympics, followed by a dramatic overtime victory over China in the 1999 World Cup that year. I clearly remember that. Now, she has been named on the coaching staff for more than 10 world championships and has been named on the Olympic Games coaching staff for women's soccer, field hockey, and ice hockey. She also helped the U.S. women's hockey team win gold this year at the Sochi Winter Olympics. Now, in addition to her work with national teams, Dr. Hacker serves as a mental skills coach to professional international and Olympic athletes in a variety of sports. She's also a professor in kinesiology, specializing in sport and exercise psychology in Tacoma, Washington. She's had over 30 years of experience there. And I remember when she won the Distinguished Professional Practice Award from the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Um, She's the first woman to do so, and I remember her keynote, which we talk a little bit about in this interview, and also ESPNW named Dr. Hacker as one of the 30 women in the country who changed the way sports are played. Wow. In this interview, Dr. Hacker and I talk about why it's important to do good work where you're at, how she got involved with Olympic teams, why people in this field in mental training need to be scholars first and practitioners second, how the best of the best can perform on demand. She shares with us her four-step progression of mental skills development. And two of my favorite things in this interview that she talks about, she says, quote, the Olympic Games are like every other game, but completely different. And then she also says that the best have sustained excellence on fire. Now, I know you're going to absolutely love this interview with Dr. Hacker, and I'd love to hear from you about this one. What stood out to you? What helped you? What surprised you? You know, to be honest, I got a little choked up towards the end. This is the first time on the podcast where my emotions got the best of me. But I think I was a little overwhelmed with emotion just realizing all of her years of experience and how I was interviewing Dr. Hacker, someone so accomplished in my field. So I'd love to hear from you what stood out to you. What what helped you? Um, what surprised you? You can reach out to me on Twitter at mentally underscore strong or always shoot me an email at syndra at syndracampoff.com. Okay, well, without further discussion, here is Colleen. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Colleen Hacker. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm just really excited to talk to you more about your work and get your insights on the profession and, and how we can all do better work out there. Great. It's wonderful to be here. 
So Colleen, just to start us off, tell us, you know, a little bit about your passion and what you do right now. Well, I'm uh, for the last, as I say to my students, for the last 30 plus years, but I'm not going to tell you how many plus go after that 30. Uh, I've been a professor in kinesiology, obviously specializing in sport and exercise psychology. So I teach at a university level. And then for the past 25 years, uh, as an individual consultant, I work probably 90% of my clients are individual Olympic and professional male and female athletes, and then um, Olympic female uh, teams in a variety of sports. Yeah, I think, you know, when I read your bio, man, it, it was incredibly impressive. And the so six Olympic teams that you've been part of the, the coaching staff, staff in terms of a mental skills consultant, you know, tell us just briefly how you got to where you are right now in your career. Yeah, I, you know, my path is probably a little bit different. There's not a day goes by that I, that I don't get an email from uh, a student in, in graduate school, whether they're a PhD candidate or an early career professional, and, and that's the question they asked. You know, I, you know, followed your career, how do I get there? And, and I think my answers, I'm not sure if it disappoints them or surprises them, but I never planned to get where I am right now. That was never my goal. And so that's actually my first piece of advice is be passionate where you are. Uh, really make a commitment to achieve excellence for whoever you're privileged to serve at the time. So if you're a youth sport coach or you're a youth sport mental skills trainer, be excellent where you are. And, and mm. I feel like so many people, everything is about the next step and where they want to be that they mm -hmm. fail to really invest fully, completely mm. in where they are. And, and so the first thing I'd say to you is I never had a career dream to do what I'm doing now. I, it never occurred to me. And then, and then life happens. So I guess what I would want to say is when I finished my graduate education, what I okay. wanted to do was teach okay. in a university, which I was already doing. And I coached intercollegiately for 17 years. Yeah. And, and that coaching background I believe really has distinguished me from other mental skills coaches. I've coached both division one and division three for 17 years. So I've been in the role of a coach. I've, I've lived that life for a very long time. I was able to uh, coach our women's soccer team to five national championship appearances. So, wow. you know, not as a mental skills coach, but as a coach, be, being able to take a team to five, you know, we finished, we won the national championship uh, three years and finished second twice. So I think there's some credibility that comes with that. And it, it isn't a toot my own horn. It's the, it's, there's a deeper message here. Um, since I retired from coaching, then I took up running. So uh, I'm a half marathoner and I'm a marathoner. So the reason I tell those stories is to say that at every point in my professional consulting, I was also, have been also either a coach at the time mm -hmm. or an, a competing athlete. So what I'm talking to athletes about aren't just uh, thoughts or ideas or 
something from a book. They're, they're, I'm, I'm actually living them myself. So it, in some ways, I'm, I'm my own participant in, in applying and understanding the competitive pressures. So it's actually, it's actually a piece of advice I'd give to uh, mental skills coaches is what are you actually doing in a field? Are you just teaching about the field or are you actually consuming it in some primary way? Because I think that's, I think that's really helpful. So the, the long story short, and it makes me sad, I want to mention Tony DiCicco because I credit him with, he, he's the one that gave me my start. And you never, you never uh, can thank the person who gave you your start enough or long enough in life. Uh, so for me, a big shout out to Tony DeChico. But how I got my start, I didn't want to start. I wasn't thinking about a sp start. I wasn't goal setting for a start. I was an intercollegiate soccer coach and I was just honored to be asked to join the national soccer coaching staff. So okay. I actually joined as a soccer coach. Okay. And, and our job was to, to do coaching education for coaches at a youth, high school, college, and professional level. So we were the, the coaching education body. So as a soccer coach, I met Anson Dorrance, who was the outgoing national team coach, Tony DeChico, who was the incoming national team coach, April Heinrichs, who followed Tony. So all of these elite coaches were part of our coaching organization. At the same time, I'm a sports psychology consultant. So, so I met them at the crossroads of being uh, part of the Olymp or the national coaching staff and a sports psychology consultant. So I'll just briefly say one of my favorite professional memories is sitting in my office out of the blue, unannounced, unanticipated. Tony DiCicco called me in 1995 and said, okay. uh, Colleen, how would you like to help us win the first gold medal in Olympic women's soccer? <laughs> and I guess, you know, that's it. I mean, how do you forget a sentence like that? And I was still coaching at the time. So I'm still an intercollegiate coach, but also building up my practice. And that was an easy yes. I, I resigned college coaching okay. only because I was offered that opportunity. Okay. So, so he, he met me as a coach and as a human being and as a mental skills coach. Okay. So he wanted somebody that brought all three elements to his team, not just expertise, but experience coaching, the right person for the fit, and then somebody with the academic and scholarly credentials to be able to help a team win the first gold medal. So that it's really was my start, and you never get a, ch a second chance for your first start. Uh, or your, for your first impression, right? <laughs> so, and, and did you, with that 1996 Olympic you know, gold medal team with women's soccer, and then I know they won the World Cup, were you hired to do mental skills with that team right away, or did you do some coaching as well? Yeah, I wish I could say I did some coaching. They were at another planet. They were at another universe. I was coaching at a small college level. So, you know, these were the giants. These were the greats uh, in the United States. So, no, he hired me as a mental skills coach, but for my entire five years working 
uh, under Tony, he always referred to me as a member of his coaching staff. Huh. When, okay. when April Heinrichs took over, uh, she named me as a member of the Olympic coaching staff. So my title wasn't mental skills coach. It was a member of the coaching staff. So that right. tells you something right away that these coaches understand how integral mental skills training is to performance excellence. Yes. So, so my, my story is as much credit to Tony's understanding of mm -hmm. mental skills training and how essential it is at any level mm -hmm. as it is any, anything that I brought. But I, I think that's the point that I'd, I'd want to make is um, I moved. So he hired me in the spring and then I moved to Florida. That's where our residency was. So I live in Washington. I moved to Florida. So I'm there seven days a week, 24 hours a day for months at a time working with the team. And in my view, that's what quality mental skills training requires. It doesn't mean flying into town, delivering a team speech, and then going on to the next city. It really requires sustained, visible, present, ongoing work across months, across years. Um, I have professional male athletes that, that I've been working with for six, seven, eight years. Uh, right. You know, I spent 12 years with U.S. soccer, spent eight years with US, USA ice hockey. So, you know, just, just that awareness, 12 years, eight years. These are long-term, consistent commitments, both to athletes and to the sport and to the program. And so, you know, give us a little insight on how you might set that up. Because I think, you know, that, that I think athletes and coaches, when they come to us, they might want a quick fix, right? And we know that like this one-time team workshop might be just like a Band-Aid. So I think it's really up to us to set that up for long-term success. Can you give us a little insight on like how you might do that? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's two parallel uh, needs going on in, in in that level of sport. In my experience, you know, every every consultant might have a different model depending on who the owners are and the coaching staff philosophy. But in my experience, with two very different sports and and no overlap of personnel, they've been remarkably similar. So there's there's two realities. There's the progress. Uh, and progression and model that you need with athletes and simultaneously so it's a little bit like a Venn diagram there's the process and the progression that occurs with the coaching staff or the leadership or management and and if you're going to have a long-term relationship with athletes in a program you've got to manage both both of those uh, relationship uh, going on at the same time at any rate, uh, okay. I'll, I'll address your first question is, you know, working at that level, I really favor um, a, triangu a triangulated approach. And there are certainly some consultants that I've heard, you know, every year uh, at national organizations that, that don't like that, don't favor it, they have problems with it. I, I hear that, I understand it, I just disagree. So I have found uh, in, in both sides of the equation to, that the triangulated approach 
provides a deeper, more accurate, and more robust uh, platform for me to do my work. So those triangles change, but at their core, it would be the coaching staff, the, the, the sport coaching staff, the consultant is, is the other uh, leg of the triangle, and then the mental skills coach, where some consultants just work with the athletes. So it's just a straight line, if that makes sense. And okay. some consultants just work with the coaching staff, and it's that straight line. I want to know what the coaches want to see from their athletes and teams. I want to know how the coaches are viewing the athletes' performance in addition to what the athletes are feeling and how they assess their performance. So, you know, here's a simple example. An athlete as an individual, if I only worked with an individual athlete, an athlete might say, yeah, the coach has no confidence in me. You know, I'm not getting a good look. Uh, you know, they're just on my case all the time. Where the day before I just heard from the coach, oh, we expect great things from this athlete. We're really pushing them to develop their skills more. So here's the athlete only seeing sort of the expectation and not feeling the belief. And the coach doesn't realize that the athlete is losing confidence and doesn't feel like they're a franchise player or that they're a part of the offense if it's the NFL or uh, that they're on the first line if it's hockey or that they're seen as a starter if it's soccer. So that ability, and then, and then vice versa, where an athlete feels like, wow, I'm just phenomenal, everything's going great, I'm the best person they have at this position. If all that I was doing was hearing from that athlete, my consultancy advice and the model and the research that I would look at is very different if they were, if they had an accurate self-assessment versus an inaccurate self-assessment. So that ability to triangulate is critical, but there's a number of different triangles. So even with HIPAA laws, I want to triangulate with the medical staff. So what can the orthopedic surgeon legally share? So, you know, what are they dealing with in terms of long-term or acute injury, the medical training staff, the massage therapist, so being able to connect with all of those different triangles, I think, uh, again, within ethical and professional and HIPAA boundaries, it allows you to have a more complete picture of the athlete. In the business world, think of it as a 360 evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. That you understand people lateral, above, below, et cetera. So that's the first thing, the, that's the first thing I'd say. And, and the second is, I, I know a lot of folks say it, uh, and yet I just see the handouts out there, for lack of a better way to say it, and one team is taken out and another team is typed in, and one name is taken out and another name is typed in. Uh, if you have a canned program, if you have a, this is what I do, I think you're not meeting the teams and the athletes where they are. I can't, I cannot possibly know in advance what an individual athlete needs. It's not possible. Nobody knows the athletes better than themselves. I can't possibly go into an Olympic quad with, and already know what they need. So my first set of interactions are question posing. I'm trying to learn 
where they've been, what they're doing well, what their strengths are, uh, if they've faltered when, where, and how they've faltered in the past, what they see are issues percolating underneath the surface. So my, my first set of interactions are a beginner's mindset. Tell sure. me what I need to know. And then I can begin to make, uh, ironically, better informed questions. So questions follow questions. And after that second round, now I'm able to offer some recommendations and insights. But I always want to work, I view my work as part of the coaching staff. So I'm back to that triangle. My message needs to, to resonate with the, the entire program's philosophy and mission and expectations. So, Clean, one quick question I have about that is like when I think about, you know, your model in terms of working with teams, that makes sense, right? Where, you know, you're, you're gathering in this information. Let's say an individual athlete comes to you and you're not working with their team, say an NFL athlete or um, an Olympic athlete where you don't know their coach. Would you do the same thing or, you know, how, how might you approach that work? Yeah, I can't, I can't do the same thing. And that's a great right. follow-up question because – you know, most of us in this field, we have a great number of individual athletes that we're working with and maybe one team. If you're, if you're doing a team well, you're a better person than I am if you can work with multiple teams. To me, that's a full-time job. But great question. So I try to get as close as I can, however imperfect, following that same route. So let me do the quick nose. No, I don't call the coach. No, I don't reach out to the coaching staff. But I'll ask that athlete uh, a series of questions. When you've played your best, tell me the qualities and characteristics of that best performance. All right, now tell me about a poor performance that you've had recently. What are the psychological characteristics of that? Okay, let's compare those. And so they quickly start seeing that they were thinking one way and a different way. They're somatic activation was different in one way. They got distracted. They didn't just get distracted. They were thinking too much. They were thinking too little. They were focused on the wrong things. I mean, the list is endless, but very quickly, not me, but they start seeing the differences. Now I have an entry point. So we triangulate, in that case, their actual lived performance. It's not me sharing it. It's them being aware that, Wow, you're right. Yeah, I hadn't seen that before. And so what we want to teach the athletes to be able to have confidence in mm -hmm. is to deliver performance on demand. You know, I tease athletes that athletes and coaches sort of wake up on game day like we approach the weather. They wake up and hope it's going to be a good day. And you can't function at a high level waking up and hoping it's going to be a sunny, warm day. So we've got to wake up and make it a good day, regardless of how we're feeling or thinking. They have to have the requisite skill and ability, and they have to have confidence in their skill and ability to bring their performance on demand, whether they feel like it or not. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll say things like, let's learn how to bring 100% of your 80% game. I... The, the notion that athletes are in this mythical zone or they have to be brilliant or fantastic to play a good game, I think they're in a world of trouble if, if, they, if they 
adopt that kind of mindset. Most athletes are dealing with something every time they go on the ice, the track, the field, the strip, if they're a fencer, the court, it doesn't matter. You know, there's nobody that has everything going on, and yet the greats learn how to get it done even with 80% of their game. Awesome. Awesome, Clean. You know, and that's kind of follows up to my next question is like, what do you, you're such an incredible opportunity to work, you know, six Olympic games as their, their coaching staff, plus all the elite athletes you work with, the business people you worked with in the organizations. What do you see some of the world's best performers or leaders do? And how do you see, you know, that separating from kind of the rest? So number one, they can deliver performance on demand, but what else? Yeah, well, they don't just know what to do. I'm struck by how often both athletes and coaches sort of give themselves credit for knowing what to do. Um, you know, uh, how did the last game go? Yeah, I just wasn't focused. Uh, how, how uh, you know, what do you need to do better at? Well, I, I really should use imagery more. If only sport were a multiple choice test, everybody would get A's. In, in other words, it's not knowing what to do. You don't get any extra points for knowing what to do. You have to do what you know. You have to act on it. So that, to me, is the great separator from those on the podium and those that aren't, from Olympians and non-Olympians, from professional athletes and non-professional athletes. Uh, my students, as much as I love them, and I do, my students will sit and say, yeah, I know about imagery. Yeah, I heard about goal setting. Yeah, they know all kinds of things. They just don't do them. Sure. They don't do them. So the biggest separation is the greats act on what they know. If, if they understand and embrace that imagery is going to help them, then they want to know how often to do it, when to do it, why to do it, how to do it better. If you can show them through their performance that they need to develop a mistake ritual, then they're going to want to know, is this right? How about this? Um, so, so the elites act on it. They make it a mission to do it and not just know about it. And that's really simple to say. It's simple to understand. But that chasm between knowing and doing is the most significant chasm that I've found in elite performance. Excellent. And even the way they might ask you questions might be different. You know, they're, they're probing for more and more and more so that they just don't know, yeah, I need to do imagery, but they want to know in detail how they need to do imagery or how they need to do goal setting or how they need to, you know, get in their, their optimal zone, right? Like they're, they're asking you prompting questions so that they can learn more and do more. Absolutely. And it's completely individualized. So my nine o'clock appointment Yes. And advice and suggestions might follow a very different path than the, than the 1015 appointment. So back to this, it's individualized. Second, meet the athletes mm -hmm. where the athletes are. Meet the team where the team is. I really believe as well in a periodized approach to mental skills training, the same way that athletes are very accustomed to periodizing their strength and conditioning and their speed and agility training. So in a quad or in the off season, like sometimes I'll only have a year cycle to work, for instance, with a professional athlete. Sometimes I'll have a quad four years to work with an Olympic athlete. So either way, it's just a longer periodized schedule or a shorter periodized schedule. 
but um, you want that uh, teaching, learning, acquisition, implementation in practice and, and subcritical events, and then implementation in, in you know, big events, and then reevaluation. And that cycle just continues and continues. So, for example, as we get closer to the Olympic Games, I make it a point we're not introducing any new psychological skills or strategies. We're not introducing anything new in the same way that you don't start a new squat routine uh, during the Olympic Games, right? So we're periodizing it and then tapering, if you will. So by the time we get to a world championship, by the time we get to an Olympic Games, by the time a professional uh, player season starts, we ought to be at the top of that pendulum. We ought to be at the refinement stage. So the, the work occurs ahead of time. And, and there's no shortcut. There's no easy button. It has to be sustained excellence over time. You know, and I think one thing that really impressed me, Colleen, you know, you, you did the Coleman Griffith lecture maybe three or four years ago at ASP, the Association for Applied Sports Ecology, and uh, was a member of the audience and completely uh, loved the keynote that you provided. One of the things that I took away from that was how uh, informed your work is by research. And, you know, how it's not just, you know, taking an idea, but you're making sure that it's, you know, backed by the research in our field. So tell us why that's important to you. And the second question I'd have is like, how do you do that? So for people who are listening, who are working in the field, or you maybe not working in the field, but thinking about their own work and whatever that is, how can they use the research to inform what they do? I really appreciate that. Thank you for the compliment, but I really appreciate that, that you took that away from it. I, I think people who've known me over the decades understand that I feel a tremendous responsibility to, to embody the scholar-practitioner model. And it goes scholar-practitioner. I feel like uh, there, there's a certain number of folks in our field that want to know the tricks. Oh, what's the trick to teach this? What's the technique you use? To, the technique and the tricks, so to speak, are the last step. And those need to be personalized and individualized. I, I'm just always amazed at how many conferences, it's standing room only for learning the tricks of the trade, and there's 30 people in understanding the scholarship that informs uh, those techniques. So. So number one is I think our entire profession would be enhanced and I think each individual's effectiveness as a consultant is enhanced if they adopt the responsibility of scholar first, scholar practitioner. So what does that mean? It means you have to, there's, there, I try not to be declarative. There's a lot of things that I don't feel declarative about, but this is one where I feel declarative about you have to read the primary scholarly research, not the, not the best-selling book that was based on the, the um, primary scholar research. And I, I'm smiling. I don't want to use book titles, but I'm asked all the time, you know, oh, have you read? And then it's flavor of the month, whatever that coach or consultant, have you read this book? I just loved it. And I try to say as evenly as I can, no, I haven't, but I have read the primary research that informed that best-selling book. 
you've got to read the primary research, and that means going to the Journal of Sport and Exercise Psychology, going to Sports Psychology in Action, going to the International Journal of Sport Psychology. There, it's hard work. Yes. Uh, it, there's no shortcut. So you want to understand the theoretical underpinnings of why a technique might or might not work at that particular time with that particular ash, uh, athlete in that particular sport. There are so many variables that impact the efficacy of a technique or a treatment that one, one would be reckless to learn the techniques without learning the scholarship and theoretical underpinnings. So 100% of the time when I present, you will see that the evidence that supports my practice, the theoretical underpinnings. Now, having said that, I can't talk like that to athletes. Their, their sure. heads would be on the floor. It's not that they're not right. bright enough and not that they're not capable, but back to my first precept, you have to meet the athletes where the athletes are. Mm -hmm. So I might read the research on cognitive restructuring right. and I'll talk to the athletes about stinking thinking. Sure. Absolutely. So, so it's that kind of a change where your language changes, but it, it's based on that same uh, scholarship. So right. drink deeply, drink deeply from primary research, which is not books. I'm trying to say the same thing a, a million different ways, but books are secondary sources. You want to go to the primary scholarship. Second, in our field, in my opinion, if you are not actively reading in four areas, actively and ongoing reading in four areas, in my view, you cannot be the best mental skills coach that you're capable of being. And that is motor learning research. I'm shocked by how little sports psychology consultants really are, are experts in motor learning. Sociology of sport, Sport occurs around other human beings. These athletes are performing in social systems, with families, with sport organizations, with media, with politics, with education, with socioeconomic status, with issues of race. I mean, the sociology of sport is an absolute must. Exercise psychology, not, and then performance enhancement. So those four areas are just sort of the opening bid and then, obviously, you mentioned in my world, I work with what I call, uh, you know, my uh, corporate athletes. So then for me, there's a fifth level, which is the business literature. So I need to know what the, the C-suite executives are reading. And I need to know what C-suite executives are basing their company or, or their you know, managers or their leaders. So, yeah, so reading primary research, reading deeply and broadly in those four areas, and then based on the findings and recommendation, in concert with the individuals you're working with at that moment, then you create your interventions, where I think for a lot of folks, they learn the tricks of the trade, and then they, what I call spray and pray, they spray them out there and pray some of them work. Um, that, that's, not, that's not 
uh, a, a good model for professional practice. Yes, for sure. And you know, one of the things that I'm hearing, you're, you're really deliberate in your work. You've thought through it. It's over the long term, not the short term. And you know, one of the things that you kind of uh, told me about before we started the interview was how that, you know, you really look at the Olympics in quads. So tell mm-hmm. us about like how you might do that and how does that inform what you do? Yeah, and and I'm going to address that specific question, but I would say to all the listeners, you might not have a quad to work with, but actually it's a good model if you think intercollegiate athletes are their own quad, right? First year, second year, third year, senior year, Hmm. high school, you know? So even even though I'm going to specifically talk about the Olympic Games, use, use this model to whatever program and whatever level your listeners are are uh, working. So for both athletes and coaches, uh, I look at a four-step progression. Uh, They're already athletes. They're already on the team. They're already in the national team pool. So we know they're pretty good, right? So, you know, they're already doing infinitely more right than wrong. And I think as consultants, we have to remember that. But I I think of a four-step progression that I share with people, that they start out unaware and unskilled. In other words, they don't know why they're good. They don't, I don't know, I had never used imagery, I don't know, Uh, this thinking about today's game count, yes, that counts. So they're unaware of mental skills, and so they're not very skilled at it. Then um, we begin working together, and they become aware of a variety of mental skills, 10, 12 different mental skills, but they're unskilled at bringing them on demand. They're aware of them, they understand what they are, but they're, again, unskilled at, at being able to do it when they, when they need it most. Mm. Then they transition to third phase, which is aware and skilled. So now I know about activation strategies, I know about mistake rituals, I know about pre-performance routines, I know the importance of confidence, and I'm skilled enough to do that on my own. I can, I can do it not just in practice but in games, not just in smaller competitions but in the biggest competitions. And then joyfully but ironically, uh, the best of the best then transition to the fourth and final stage for me, which is unaware and skilled. You think, unaware, obviously you want them to be able to do these mental skills without thinking of them. So we go back from controlled attention to automatic attention to use the motor learning uh, language. So when we're having to be thoughtful and thinking about things, we're using controlled focus and attention, and we know that best performance happens when it's unconscious, when it's automatic. So then that final stage is unaware and skill. So mm-hmm. that, that would be, and same thing with coaches, is teaching coaches going through those four stages so that they're very intentional about what, what they want from me or from the mental skills coach. I mentioned being periodized. So in a quad, the first two years are our heavy learning periods. That's when we'll introduce whichever, whichever, and however many of the 10 or 12 most common mental skill areas that the coaching staff feels that this team needs in this quad. So again, everything 
from activation strategies, closed open skills, team relationships, self-confidence, dealing with acute or chronic injury, uh, a, a major event for professional sport and Olympic sports are event criticality. So I spend a tremendous amount of time on event criticality, um, match criticality, situation criticality. So those three components. And then qualification events. Uh, think of that as the playoffs. You know, we're in the middle of March Madness right now. Absolutely. Not like the regular season. And we're seeing evidence of that every single day. You know, I was fortunate to be on a panel in ASP uh, a year or two ago on preparing for the Olympic Games. And it's a mouthful, but I'm going to tell you everything that, that I believe in the title of my talk. Perfect. And it's this. And it's this. The Olympic Games are exactly like every other game and completely different. And if you don't practice for both sides of that equation, you are not going to do well. I feel like I hear so much from coaches and athletes, whether it's the Super Bowl or whether it's a gold medal game, you know, treat it like any other game, not going to make any changes, it's the same, and I want to say, what planet are you living on? There's <laughs> nothing about it. There's nothing about it that's the same. So you're going to try to keep to the same schedule, the same routine, the same techniques. Yes, you're going to do that side of the equation, but you also have to, in advance, have planned for the other side of the equation, and that is it's completely different. That's and a until really you, good point. Yeah, how do you do that, Colleen? What do you think? Yeah, and, and that, that I'll go back to the penultimate point that I made. So we work very early on on event criticality, that all games aren't the same. Um, I'll just use Pyeongchang. So we lost in pool play to Canada. So it was an important game. It was an Olympic game. But that game didn't have the criticality. Both teams were already advancing. No, it didn't matter if we won, lost, or draw. I'm not trying to in any way indicate that we didn't want to win or we wouldn't have preferred to win, but it, it didn't matter. The fact of the matter is both Canada and the United States were advancing to the semifinal match. Well, that has a different level of event criticality than a gold medal match. So those kinds of things. So winning the conference championship means that you go into the playoffs, but winning conference has a lower level of event criticality than that first playoff game, which is one and done or an NFL playoff season. So there's event criticality and then there's situation criticality. The situation criticality can occur in any event. So a situation criticality is maybe, um, you know, my final at bat in the ninth inning. It's having to make the front end of a one-on-one -on -one in a, in a close game in basketball. So the match may or may not be critical, but that situation is critical. And the reality is there's a very different physiology that's going to be occurring. There's a very different cognitive shift that you can reasonably anticipate is going to occur. So we need to practice that ahead of time. I'm just, I'm gonna use our gold medal team um, 
Jocelyn Lamoureux scored what became our game-winning goal in the overtime in, in Olympic ice hockey. And I love, uh, by her own admission, after she scored the goal, Canada still had another shot. So if they would have made it, you know, we would have gone on again. Maddie Rooney, our goalie, 20-year-old goalie, by the way, 20-year-old goalie stops a four-time Olympian shot. But after Jocelyn Lamoureux scores her goal, she actually just put her stick down on the bench. She was that confident in her teammate that was going to make the save. So there's somebody who had faith in advance. It's one thing to say afterwards that you had faith. It's another thing to sort of show by your actions. We had trained for situation criticality. She had trained for situation criticality. Uh, She talked about working for years and years and years with her coach in North Dakota on that shot. So it's that example, like she had trained for regular games and then she had trained for match criticality and for situation criticality. And she was very intentional and specific and deliberate in that practice. Uh, But for those of us that are saying, treat it like any other game, don't change a thing, it's exactly the same, uh, it just makes me chuckle. Absolutely. as there's 4,000 cameras facing you, as you go through the mix zone and you have five hours of interviews, you're going, it's not like any other game. So we've got, we've got to plan. We've got, we've got to do a better job of really understanding the environment in which elite performers have to display their skills. And Colleen, can you tell us, give us a little insight on how you might train that match criticality or the situation criticality? Like, you know, just kind of paint us a picture of what, like, what that might look like. And so I'm thinking this question could be really helpful for the lead athletes who listen, right? Or even if it's not somebody who works in sport, it could be, you know, you have a big a critical situation coming up, right? That you want to do really well in that might be a higher stakes, you know, involved. Like, how, how do you think that it's best that we kind of mentally prepare for that? Right. Well, uh, as close as you can engage in simulation training. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. L- let me, let me, let me get, let me answer that first by saying what not to do. And, okay. and in saying what not to do, I think a lot of folks will recognize themselves, whether it's free throw shooting or penalty kicks or penalty shots or, you know, all of these situation criticality moments that you have in whatever your sport is, how a lot of people train is they'll take 10 free throws in a row. They'll take 20 free throws in a row. They'll take 100 free throws in a row. And then they'll call that commitment and practice. Okay, great. That's a great way to habituate your skills. That's a great way to perfect your technique. But that type of practice does not help you at all in any way in situation-critical events. Because if you know the motor learning literature, every shot you take improves your next shot. So I'll just use 10 as an example. So when I go and I'm going to practice getting better at free throws for when I'm on the line for a one-on-one with a game on the line, I shoot 10 free throws in in a row. Every free throw... I actually get better at, and so it's a false sense of security. It's a false sense of confidence. So 
I don't know if that helps at all, but how athletes and coaches train for situation criticality flies in the face of, of decades of motor learning research, just to be blunt. And then you combine the motor learning research and the sports psychology literature, and now we get to the answer of your question. So I'll use free throw shooting as an example, but I could use penalty kicks in soccer, and you know I, I could do this you know, bat, at bats in baseball and on and on and on, field goal attempts in football. It, there's just no, no sport where it doesn't apply in, in which there are these situation critical moments. So in basketball, instead of taking 10 or 50 or 100 free throws, let's get the scoreboard on and let's put 49 points for our team and 50 for the other. Because in practice, athletes never look at the scoreboard. Why? Because the scoreboard isn't on. Because nobody's keeping score. Because nobody cares. So they don't have to think, worry, deal with all of those same thoughts and emotions. Just watch a game and look at how many times people look up at the scoreboard. Right. They're constantly looking at the scoreboard. Mm -hmm. So if you want to practice situation criticality, mm -hmm. coaches and athletes, Get the scoreboard on, um, give your team one less point, and then run a sprint down to the, the other end of the court, then come back and take your free throw. Why? Why sprint down and then come back and take your free throw? Because free throws happen in the run of play. You've just been playing defense. You've just been playing offense. You're tired. So your heart's racing, your thoughts, you have to be able to transition your thoughts. So we're going to run down, run back to simulate that high energy, that physiological load. And now you've got to take a free throw. And guess what? You're going to take the first of a one-on-one. -on -one. And if you miss that first one of a one-on-one, -on -one, now the rest of the team is on offense. Do you follow what I'm saying? We're simulating. Yes. We're simulating the conditions on which we have to make the play. So in your world, in professional football, you'll see kickers kicking in, right, kicking into the, to the net 30, 40 times. Well, 37 is better because of the 36. Five is better because of the fourth. Then you trot out into the field, and now I've got to do it. With a racing heart and divergent thoughts and concentration, I've looked up at the scoreboard. All of a sudden, nobody's patting my helmet when I'm kicking into the, into the net, but I walk out of the field and everybody's giving me a thumbs up and patting me. It's different. So I have to train under the same conditions under which I'm going to have to execute that skill. And people, people mistake repetition for performance excellence. And you have to replicate the physiological, psychological, and cognitive demands as close as you can. And when you can perfect it on demand, now we've got somewhere. Uh, Colleen, you give me a lot to think about. One of the things that I'm working to connect with what you just said about kind of simulation is you know, the, the fourth uh, step in your progression, which is unaware, and skilled. And, yeah, unaware and skilled, correct. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, besides like this, in terms of simulating and practice, what do you see the best do in terms of how do they get there? 
Uh, sustained excellence over time. They're not one-hit wonders. They're not flavor of the month. Uh, they're going to get there psychologically and mentally. They become mentally tough in fire. I mean, you, you've got to be in the competitive cauldron, and it's in the competitive cauldron that you have to hone and refine our skills. So I try to hold my, count, my clients accountable in practice and games. So I don't want to just know that you understand what I'm saying. I don't want to just know that you can repeat what I'm saying. Again, it's not a multiple choice test. I want to know um, in soccer, uh, an important role of a midfielder is being able to change the point of attack. So I'm going to actually keep track. I'm going to count the number of times you change the point of attack in your game. So I, I think one of the things, part of the reason – there's a million reasons why athletes are so committed to strength and conditioning. But one of the reasons is it's numeric. It's, it's, we see that 150 pounds is 10 more pounds than 140. You know, 300 pounds is 10 pounds more than 290. So we have a very clear metric. I try to provide that same thing in mental skills training. So Back, back to our earlier talk when I said compare your best game to when you underperformed. In soccer, a back might say, you know, when I'm not confident, I, I hesitate going forward. I just don't want to get on attack. You know, I'm not confident that I'll get back. I'm afraid I'll make a mistake. So we'll keep track of that. We'll say, okay, your average game, you get forward four times per half. Okay, I looked at this last game. I looked at the film of this last game. You only went forward two times. Why'd you only go forward two times? So we give them metrics. And they start understanding that when they can control their confidence, and then I say to you after the game, did you watch the film? Did you remember? How many times did you get forward? I got forward five times. Now we see the athlete sees their progress in the arena where it matters. So we want to impact performance. I want to work with athletes who see the fruits of our labor in their performance, not just in their head, but in their performance. You know, have their, has their field goal kicking changed in critical events, in different distances, against different opponents? So we do a lot of metrics. We want to sort of like show me the evidence, show me the proof that working in mental skills has resulted in improved performance on the slope, on the field, on the ice. And so you, you have to know the athlete and you have to know what is a typical performance to know when they're exceeding and when they're underperforming. But I'll tell you, the athletes know that. So we need to do a better job, we meaning mental skills coaches, quantifying what we're doing. And I'm not talking about psychometric quantification. I'm talking about actual performance. Hmm. Athletes, hmm. Don't, athletes don't hire us so that they get higher scores on their sports psychology exams. No. They hire us to be better performers. Yes. So, yes. so let's, let's find metrics. You know, are they winning more first balls? Are they winning more second balls? Is their service improving? Um, are they getting back? So you have to be able to, in sport terms, 
quantify the evidence, quantify the proof of improved concentration, improved focus, an ability to handle distractions, an ability to regain my confidence after I lose it. You know, um, I think most people are surprised at, at how often elite performers struggle with confidence. I yes. think the lay public thinks, man, you're the best in the world. You're a Super Bowl champion. You're Olympic gold medalist. Your confidence must be off the charts. Right. Not so. Right. Not so. So yeah. that, that ability to withstand the roller coaster that is, in, that is confidence, that's something that we can quantify. If you're a goal scorer and you don't score for a quarter, that's better than not scoring for three or four games in a row. Yes. So, so we look at how quickly you can come back. So there's all kinds of ways, but I, I want to be able to show athletes. And more importantly, I want athletes to see for themselves in their performance how mental, a commitment to mental skills training results in a better performance. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think if we know the sport, we can do that. So Colleen, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you kind of, as we wrap up the interview, we could, we could talk about these issues like, <laughs> oh, man, couldn't we? oh man, but you know, I think about the amazing work you're doing in the field and the amazing work that so many other people are doing. What do you think holds people back from and thinking about the athletes or the business people that we work with or the coaches from kind of coming forward and saying, gosh, you know, this mental skill stuff really helped me. What do you think is holding people back there? And I know there's more and more awareness and more people talking about it, but what, do you, what are your thoughts on that in general? Yeah, there is. And I love that question. First of all, I just bow down in appreciation. Every time an athlete goes public, it's like a pebble in a clear lake. It goes out to so many athletes. They read it. They see it. When we see Michaela Schifrin struggle with nerves, yes. the yes. number one ranked skier in the world, wow, we say apparently we're all mere mortals when it comes time to perform. Yeah. So when we see Lindsey Vaughn write performance cues on her ski gloves, yes. when we see Serena Williams uh, write uh, performance reminders, which, which are what? They're forms of self-talk. So the first thing I'll say is every time an elite performer is public about their use of mental skills training, mm. they help everyone um, performing at lower levels and they help athletes in other sports. Mm. Um, what holds us back? The belief that sports psychology is for head cases. Oh, yes. there's something wrong with you. I say, I, I don't deal with head cases. I get to deal with the best people in the world at what they do. And they want to, they're, they're already great. They're not head cases. What, what, why are they hiring me to help them stay there longer yes. to help them enjoy the experience of being there or to work on some right now stuff? Generally they're great at ABC, but right now they just need a little bit of a tweaking on C. So I think one thing that holds people back is that there's something wrong with you or that you're a head case. Not the case at all. Second, it's a quick fix. Um, for a lot of sports psychology consultants, their bread and butter, for lack of a better way of, to say it, is something that I absolutely have refused to do in a 40-year career, is I won't be a one-trick pony. So I don't go in and just do a session uh, with a team and then say, I worked with 
NBA. I don't go in and do a session with an NFL team and then claim that I'm working in the NFL. It's just called giving a presentation. Um, so there aren't quick fixes. So anytime you do something one and done, in essence, I think you're you're implicitly part of the problem. You're saying bringing me in one time is going to be meaningful and helpful. And so I won't do that because I don't want to model the very thing that I'm speaking against. And I realize I've just made a lot of enemies and I'm, I'm comfortable in that world. But <laughs> I, I just, just don't be a one hit wonder because during your one hit wonder, you're telling them how it takes time and hard work and you're in one time and out. So there's a real credibility problem there. Absolutely. I think, a I think there's a third issue is athletes think you either have it or you don't as though it were um, DNA or genetically determined. Like you either have blue eyes or you have brown eyes. Mental skills are just like strength training. Different people are stronger or weaker in different muscles at any given time, mm -hmm. but everybody can get stronger mm -hmm. with proper training and expertise. Mm -hmm. So you, no matter, let's say you're already mentally tough, let's help you get mentally tougher. Let's say you already use imagery, let's help you use imagery more effectively. It's like athletes are already strength training, so why go to a strength and conditioning coach? Because they're going to help you do it more efficiently and more accurately and safely. You know, Absolutely. and I, I think... I think in some ways that, that would be the final one that, that I've already discussed, but people thinking that psychological skills are different from physical skills. So if you want to get better at your, running your offense, what do you have to do? Run your offense, you know? And you have to run your offense, um, you know, every day at practice, and you've got to run it against different opponents, and you have to run it in different conditions. Well, guess what? In mental skills training, you've got to work on it on a daily basis. Not in the classroom, sitting at your desk with your iPad dutifully open, taking notes, but on the field, on the rink. You've got to practice mental skills where mental skills occur. And, and I chuckle at this. Can you imagine a coach saying, look, I'm going to implement a new offense. I'll have everybody in the classroom. Uh, please take notes. This is the new offense. Uh, they show the new offense. They do a PowerPoint on the new offense. They give the athletes a workbook and a handout on the new offense, and you and you're laughing because you know where I'm going with this. Yes, it's not going to work. This is what mental skills trainers do all the time. They have PowerPoint presentations. You know, they're they're just all sizzle and no steak. So we do wonderful power presentations. We do magic tricks. We spin plates on our fingers. We're engaging and memorable, and we make people laugh, and then we never hear or work with them again. That's not mental skills training. That's a dog and pony show. So I think we're missing sizzle for the steak, and then we wonder why there might be a credibility problem or a hiring back problem. And, and I'll say that's why it's meaningful to me to be with the program 12 years, eight right. years, you're not coming back 12 years if you haven't proven your value. Absolutely. You're not working with a professional athlete for five, six, seven, eight years if you haven't proven your value. So it, it, it just, we just can't, we're too busy, as John Wooden says, we're too busy learning the tricks of the trade 
without learning the trade. Mm -hmm. we, we, we have to build our house on a strong foundation. And, and Kevin Costner reminds us, if you, if you build it, they will come. Well, I'll co-op that phrase with, with mental skills training. When we prove our value and we prove our, our worth over time, yeah. athletes, coaches, and teams will come to us. I've just seen it over the course of 30 years. Absolutely. And I think about, you know, how you've even built your career. It wasn't a fancy website, right? It was about doing great work and doing amazing work where you're at and then continuing that. And obviously we've seen that now. Colleen, I am just honored <laughs> to interview you. And I just think about all the experience you've had, how many lives that you've touched and how you've really helped, you know, our, our U.S. teams strengthen their mental game and what good has come from that. And so I just want to honor you and thank you for your time. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Because I'm just kind of like taking in everything that you have done in this field and how you're such a great role model for all of us. And, you know, I think about as I've been taking some notes today, like the things that most have um, impacted me. And, Sandra, Sandra, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to. You asked me what separates the good from the great. You're modeling it right now. Here you are, established in your field, a respected figure, working with the greats, and listen to what you just said. And I, I know I'm being rude as a person, but I judge this to be so important. I want all the listeners to hear that. And here you are taking notes. That's the difference. The greats continue to learn. They have something to learn, and as a consequence, they do. So I just lift you up as a model for what the very things I'm talking about is you're green and growing. You're green and growing, even at the level that you're at. That's what the listeners need to attend to, is what you're modeling right there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And, you know, I'm just taking in all your wisdom today. And it's like thinking about, right, like, how can I grow? How can I learn? What can I continue to do differently? And how can I even use the research even more to inform my good work? So here are the things that I got from you today, Colleen. And I want to repeat these because I want people to think about what did they just learn from, from the time with you. So one of the main things that I heard was just the importance of like doing long-term work consistently, right? And it's not just kind of like this one and done thing, but what can you do in terms of working with your, the individuals, but also the teams long-term? And it's not, you know, yeah. you're talking about 12 years, right? Sort of the, the other things that really impacted me was how you said four-step progression. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, that, that really our goal is to help people kind of be unaware and skilled and that so they can do it without thinking that it is unconscious and automatic. You talked about how the Olympics is like every other, you know, competition, but very completely different and how you have to really like uh, mentally prepare for that. And you talked about simulation. And then I also really just enjoyed what you said at the end about really what your goal is to help people enjoy it, stay with it either longer or, you know, work with the stuff that they have right now. And that everybody can learn from these mental skills just because you think that you're mentally tough doesn't mean that you can't be more mentally tougher, right? And that, you know, our work is best informed by the research. It's not like kind of this, we need to understand the research before we can understand the strategies. So there we go. <laughs> beautifully summarized. Beautifully summarized. 
Uh, Colleen, I just appreciate so much of your time and you're just your openness to talk about your work, what advice would you have? So I think about the people who are listening and they might be elite athletes, they might be business leaders, they might be sports psychology consultants or coaches, you know, so what advice would you like to kind of finish with? I, I guess a couple of things. One, uh, only, only because of the, the number of people who reach out to me with common questions, you know, how do I get to the next? How do I, is be where your feet are embrace, seek excellence where you're at right now. I don't care what level, what age, what group, you are part of a noble and honorable enterprising enterprise, helping people achieve whatever their individual or collective potential is, is really to understand that, that the big time is where you're at right now. It's not some other place. So be where your feet are. Uh, seek excellence where you are right now. If nothing else comes from it, there's honor and, and value in that. And, and the second I'd say, and, and you know, here you are again, you hit on it. I've said everywhere I go, the greatest part of my life are the people in it. I view my role and, and my advice to others is to adopt a similar mindset as I view myself as a servant leader, that I think we serve that we lead best by serving others. And so I, I feel just honored and privileged when athletes take me in, trust, trust our relationship, uh, want to be collaborative in this quest for excellence together. It's not a top down, it's not me to them, it's a, it's a reciprocal relationship. So really just view yourself as a servant leader. How can you serve others? How can you help others? Uh, I, I joke, but it's not a joke. I said, I don't do anything interesting or significant. I help interesting and significant people. <laughs> so that's how I look at it. And, and I think if you have that mindset, um, I, I, just, I just feel honored and privileged when I, when I do get to be part of their journey. And that's, that's really what my role is. I'm part of their, their journey. So, yeah. so be a leader by serving others. And, and, then, and then I'll finish. Um, my dad, who's since passed away, I, I grew up camping. And one of his principles in camping is always leave the campsite cleaner than when you got there. I can't, I can't camp to this day without walking around and leaving the campsite cleaner than when I got there. So my final piece of advice is, is leave the athlete better than when you got there. Leave the team better than when you got there. Leave the profession better than when you got there. Um, teach, mentor, bring others along. Um, be, be generous uh, with other people rather than proprietary. Uh, those kinds of things of metaphorically leaving the campsite better than when you got there, I think, is, has served me well. Excellent. So three pieces of final advice. Seek, seek excellence where you're at right now. View yourself as a servant leader and then leave it cleaner or better than uh, when you came. So Colleen, I know you're on Twitter at, uh, at Dr. Clean Hacker, right? What are other ways that we might be able to connect with you or would that be the um, best way? That would probably be the best way. I, I sort of issue a, a uh, online presence. Um, I think good work gets more good work. So, uh, yeah, I think Twitter would probably be the way to do that. 
Okay, that's Dr. Colleen Hacker. And tell us what you thought about today's interview, what stood out to you. You can head over there and you can tag Dr. Colleen Hacker in there and myself at mentally underscore strong. So Colleen, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I'm honored and I really appreciate uh, you taking some time with us this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today on the High Performance Mindset. If you'd like to learn more about the mental game in business, sport, and in life, you can pick up your own copy of the Beyond Grit book and workbook at beyondgrit.com. The book and workbook covers 10 practices to help you gain the high performance edge and provides practical strategies and tools that work. Adam Thielen, a Pro Bowl wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings, wrote the foreword. And you can learn his insights on how he implements the mental game. And a special offer for the listeners of the podcast, you can use the code FREESHIP, that's capital letters and all one word, FREESHIP, to get free shipping of the book and workbook at beyondgrit.com. Have an outstanding day, my friends, and be mentally strong. Thank you for listening to High Performance Mindset. If you like today's podcast, make a comment, share it with a friend, and join the conversation on Twitter at Mentally Underscore Strong. For more inspiration and to receive Syndra's free weekly videos, check out DrSyndra.com.